my name is Doug Herman, and I am a litigation partner with Pepper Hamilton in Wilmington, Delaware. I want to welcome you to the latest episode from a series of podcasts that Troutman Sanders and Pepper Hamilton will be producing over the next few weeks to discuss litigation topics that have been brought to the forefront by the COVID-19 pandemic and how businesses might be able to prepare and respond. Today's podcast is going to focus on securities litigation and disclosure issues. We will look at if we expect a rise in litigation, including class action and derivative lawsuits, SEC disclosure guidance, and we will also discuss loss causation claims and insolvency issues. Our panel today consists of litigation partner Tim Mast and corporate partner David Myers with the Troutman Sanders firm, and Pam Palmer and Bob Hickok, litigation partners with the Pepper Hamilton firm. Jumping into the topics, can we expect an increase in the filing of securities class actions as a result of the coronavirus pandemic? And this is Bob Hickok. Uh, Doug, in response to that, yes, we think we will see increased litigation focused on disclosure issues and accounting issues. Uh, lawsuits will likely allege that companies have not made adequate disclosures about the risk they face from the pandemic and its aftermath. Lawsuits may also allege that companies have not properly accounted for the financial impact of the pandemic. Accounting issues could include subsequent events reporting, going concern issues, and asset impairment issues. Uh, the increase in stock market volatility associated with the pandemic has caused sudden drops in the prices of many companies' securities. A drop in stock price is a precondition that the plaintiff's bar looks for in bringing a securities class action. They typically allege the drop in stock price was the result of the stock market learning about a misstatement or omission of material information made by the company. We are now moving into earnings season where companies will report their first quarter results. If the stock market reacts adversely to a company's report, that may be a trigger to the filing of a lawsuit. There was an increase in the filing of securities class actions during the 2008 financial crisis, uh, which was also a period of substantial stock market volatility, and we anticipate the same will occur here. Which companies uh, are most at risk uh, with these types of actions that we might see an increase? Uh, here, any, any company whose business is directly affected by the pandemic will be at greater risk. Uh, companies in the healthcare, the airline, tourism, and energy sectors may be at particular risk. Uh, for example, pharmaceutical companies working on medicines that might be used to treat the coronavirus will have to be careful about the disclosures they make. A lawsuit has already been filed against Innovio Pharmaceuticals, alleging that the company's CEO falsely claimed that the company had successfully developed a vaccine against the spread of COVID-19 in that it anticipated rapidly bringing the vaccine to market. Um, in addition, class actions have been filed against uh, Norwegian cruise lines, alleging that the company discussed positive outlooks for the company's cruise ship operations in February 2020, in spite of the coronavirus outbreak that was already underway. Uh, and they further allege that the company engaged in improper sales practices which understated the health risk of cruise travel to potential customers. Finally, there are two interesting class actions that have been filed against Zoom video communications. Uh, these class actions allege that the surge in use of uh, Zoom's video conferencing services following uh, the coronavirus outbreak 
revealed purportedly undisclosed weaknesses in the company's security and alleged privacy weaknesses with its systems. So there it's a situation where the complaints allege the coronavirus was actually the event that caused the company's prior misstatements concerning security weaknesses to be disclosed. Bob, this is Tim Mast. I just wanted to follow up on that. And while it's certainly true that specific industries will be more directly and adversely impacted, I would just add that one of the unique circumstances we're faced with here is that the pandemic is impacting almost all industries in one way or another. The securities complaints that you mentioned regarding Zoom video communications are a good example of the pandemic stress testing a company's business and raising questions about possible deficiencies in its products or services. Other examples may involve weaknesses in a company's supply chain, disclosures that may be seen in hindsight to sugarcoat or soften the blow in the eyes of investors, which ultimately proved to be inaccurate with the benefit of hindsight, could get directors and officers into trouble and ultimately lead to litigation. Tim mentioned disclosures. Has the SEC provided any guidance to companies on the disclosures they should be making? Thank you. This is Dave Myers. I'm a corporate partner at Troutman. So as Doug previously alluded, I'm not a litigator, but I hope that given the current situation, there's a lot of overlap going on with disclosures and potential litigation. And so I think that it makes sense to talk a few minutes about what the SEC has addressed to date. So as Bob indicated, given the current unprecedented situation we face now, and as we're coming up to earnings season, it sort of was a perfect storm in that the end of March and now through April and into May is where the majority of, especially later in April and May, is where we're going to be seeing earnings releases and 10Q filings. And obviously, we're in an enormous set of uncertainty and concern. And so that has put a lot of strain on public companies as to what they're going to say to the extent they haven't said anything yet or even what they've said currently and the upcoming season. I personally believe we've never seen anything like this, even with the previous financial issues that we've seen. And so there has been a number of SEC disclosure guidance that's been provided. April 8th, the chairman of the SEC and the director of the Division of Corporate Finance put out a statement. And what they talked about, it was pretty unprecedented in that what they talked about is that they addressed the fact that upcoming calls and disclosures will not be routine and will be because of a lot of people being stayed home and how much visibility there is about what's going on. There's going to be a lot of people on these earnings calls that are not normally on such calls. And they're going to be focused on not just really not focused on historical results, but really looking to forward looking information and what companies are saying about it. And he also, the statement also talked about the fact that they believe it's very important during this time of such heightened uncertainty that companies do as much as possible to disclose where they stand and looking forward versus just focusing on the historical part. So 
they talked about three different areas where they were hoping in the upcoming earnings season companies focus on, which obviously will feed into the discussions we're having in the litigation front, where the company stands today operationally and financially, how the company's COVID-19 response, including how it's trying to protect its the health and well-being of its workforce and customers is progressing and, and how its operations and financial condition may change uh, as the transition and fighting of COVID-19 progresses. They indicated they want to see as much forward-looking information by companies as, as is practicable. And they also went on to address some of the potential litigation and liability concerns, given the fact that they're asking and hoping that they see a lot more forward-looking information from companies than would typically be the case during earnings seasons. And they said that they encourage companies that respond for forward-looking disclosures to avail themselves of the safe harbors for such statements and note that they would not expect good faith attempts to provide appropriately framed forward-looking information to be second-guessed by the SEC. So I think that's very helpful from the regulatory side. I think it's less helpful from the plaintiff side, as everybody will be talking about and has been talking about. Um, recall that for forward-looking statements, which allows companies to get a safe harbor from the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. If you are identified as a forward-looking statement and is accompanied by cautionary meaningful language, or it's deemed immaterial, or the plaintiff doesn't show that it's made with actual knowledge of its falsehood, you'll get protected um, for utilizing those forward-looking statements. So one of the real keys we believe going into this season and what we're hoping that we're seeing is that companies are being careful in terms of documenting the rationale for decisions that we're making. Um, there is enormous number of accounting and disclosure decisions that will be judged. Um, even if even if they make a good faith effort by the SEC, obviously the plaintiff bar will be really focused on, as we're seeing with these lawsuits, what companies are saying. So, um, the flip side of forward-looking statements is also risk factors, and we're going to be seeing a lot of updated risk factors. Almost every company will update their risk factor disclosures to the extent they haven't yet. The flip side of that is being very, very careful of how those are drafted due to the fact that plaintiffs will focus on whether or not there was something known that should have already been disclosed that has been omitted, and they'll be looking at that. On top of that, there's all the uncertainty in those risk factors as to how um, you combine it with the forward-looking information that the SEC is hoping companies provide. One of the main things also that we should be seeing in risk factor disclosure to help mitigate against potential plaintiff actions is a lot of risk factors have been drafted as hypotheticals. There's been a number of enforcement actions by the SEC on those hypotheticals in the past. Companies really need to consider whether or not that they're no longer hypotheticals given the pandemic that's going on and make sure that their disclosure is, a, is, is switched from hypothetical to what's actually going on. The last thing I'd like to focus on in connection with this is uh, management discussion analysis, which every uh, public company also will be focused on in this period, which as you know, item 303 requires disclosures of known trends or uncertainties that might reasonably be expected to have a material impact, for example, on sales or revenues. Um, I understand a case law requires actual knowledge of the known trend or uncertainty, but they will need to be very careful parsing through uh, 
in this area um, what um, the known drivers and trends and uncertainties are and it's likely you'll also see a lot more um, and I know my colleagues will be talking about this in a minute but plaintiffs bringing derivative suits uh, against corporate officers and directors in breaches of fiduciary duties because of failing to be adequately prepared um, for the risks of the pandemic and, 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 and mitigating uh, before we've entered this. So I know that's another focus we'll be talking about. So that's really what I wanted to talk about in terms of the disclosure front. Thanks, Dave. Dave mentioned shareholder derivative suits, which have made a comeback in recent years, even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Should we expect to see more of these suits filed on behalf of, of companies against their officers and directors? This is Pam Palmer. I'm a, a DNO uh, and securities defense lawyer, uh, partner with Pepper Hamilton, and I'm, I'll take that question. Um, I think the risk of shareholder derivative suits uh, is going to um, definitely increase. Uh, these kinds of lawsuits often go hand in hand with declines in corporate performance and very often are filed in parallel with the 10b5 stock drop class actions that Bob was talking about before. The basic concept um, is a little unusual, which is current shareholders try to stand in the shoes of the company and assert the company's own claims against its board of directors and officers for essentially mismanagement that is so bad that it cannot be forgiven under the company's articles of incorporation um, and what's often known as exculpation uh, provisions. It's difficult to bring, um, Doug, which is why you mentioned uh, the concept of comebacks. Um, derivative suits have not always been popular or lucrative for plaintiffs because they're very hard uh, to plead successfully. But in this environment, there is going to be a lot of material out there that will enable plaintiffs in some cases against some companies to tell a very good story uh, about how the COVID pandemic, uh, information that was known about it, and go back in time and, and telescope that time frame in hindsight to suggest that the board of directors was looking the other way, uh, consciously failing to exercise adequate supervision, that bad decisions were being made. And if those stories are compelling enough, as wrong as they might be, in hindsight, um, plaintiffs are, plaintiffs are going to try to bring them. Um, the theory uh, that they have to prevail on is that, um, is that there's liability that caused the corporate harm. One other you know, comment we'll, we'll get to in a, in a few minutes, but um, current shareholders are the plaintiffs in these lawsuits. And if companies become insolvent, then the plaintiffs in these lawsuits can become bankruptcy trustees and creditors who are really the heirs of the company's assets and have first dibs on it. So it can, it can come from a variety of, of places. I want to echo something Dave mentioned a second ago, which is documentation. One thing that directors and officers can do here is to make sure that it's reflected in board minutes and materials and committee meetings that 
they are taking in important information from management and from advisors and other sources and considering it in a timely fashion. That's one of the strongest defenses in real litigation that the directors and officers are going to have, that they tried. And they may not have made all the right decisions, but they were really trying in good faith to do it right. You mentioned uh, decisions. What should directors and officers uh, be doing to, in an effort to protect themselves uh, while making these decisions? Well, you know, it, as I mentioned, I think an important protection is to take in information and do it regularly and stay on top of what is happening to the company and its business partners so that the board can exercise or demonstrate that it's exercising real-time supervision and the directors and officers um, as a team are taking in the information, assessing it, and making good faith real-time decisions. Just you know, stepping back for a second, the duties of directors and officers to the company itself, which is what derivative suits are about, are based on state law. Um, and because most corporations are incorporated in Delaware, that goes to Delaware state law. It's very specific to a state. People ought to check in with their advisors and make sure they know uh, what the state law is that governs their liability. Um, they have duty of care and duty of loyalty. Uh, those are different standards. It's the breach of the duty of loyalty that can get directors and officers in, in serious trouble in derivative suits. It's very hard to plead and prove. It's self-dealing. It's conscious misconduct. Um, just making a mistake in breach of the duty of care shouldn't result in out-of-pocket expense. But breach of the duty of loyalty, if the plaintiffs can tell a good story, is another matter. And what happens in these uh, shareholder derivative lawsuits? How is this different from other litigation, Pam? Well, um, you know, it, it is an odd duck, and just you know, just very briefly, if, if a company is solvent, what's supposed to happen is <clears throat> shareholders who are unhappy with the corporate performance are supposed to take their unhappiness and present it to the board in a demand to do something about it. The board is supposed to be in charge of whether a company files lawsuits or not, including against its directors or officers or members of the board. If plaintiffs make this demand, which they're supposed to do, the board is supposed to take up that demand and treat it as a business decision, investigate it, and say yay or nay. Is this a good idea for the company to bring this lawsuit or not? A lot of times, shareholders don't bother to go through that step. They just file it and say it would be useless because the directors are up to their eyeballs and their own liability here. Um, these are claims that are often litigated on the basis of that that dynamic at the pleading stage and thrown out. But as I mentioned earlier, increasingly in recent years and, and through hindsight, and books and records discovery of what's been going on at the company, which shareholders are entitled to. Shareholders have been busting through that pleading stage and sometimes getting to carry on the litigation in the name of the company. Pam, this is Tom. Just to follow up on that, in addition to derivative claims, companies making initial or secondary offerings of securities also face potential liability under Sections 11 and Section 12 of the 33 Act. 
for any misstatements or omissions in a registration statement or prospectus. Those companies will, be, will need to be very attentive to the disclosures relating to the effect of the pandemic on their business, along the lines that Dave discussed earlier. It's also worth adding in the context of 33 Act claims that the Delaware Supreme Court recently upheld forum selection clauses that require these claims to be brought exclusively in federal court. This is a significant development which could soften the blow of the United States Supreme Court's opinion in Siam from 2018, which held that federal and state courts have concurrent jurisdiction over 33 Act claims. Since that decision, defendants have frequently been required to defend federal securities claims in state courts around the country where certain procedural protections, such as heightened pleading requirements and the automatic stay of discovery mandated by the PSLRA, may not readily be available. This is Dave. Could I, could I add one thing? One of the things, just to go back on disclosure, is because of the current situation we've seen, uh, particularly in the last few weeks, an unprecedented public offerings for debt. Many companies are really out in the market right now doing everything they can because of liquidity issues and the fact that of uncertainty. And so it, it has accelerated a lot the disclosures that companies are, are, are would have normally made in earnings season are, are being looked at right now. And so that's just something else to be aware of, to be very careful with those um, offerings that you're conducting with the disclosures that are going on. Thanks, Dave and Tim. Uh, the, the stock market has been quite volatile over the last several weeks. How does the concept of market efficiency apply when we're in this market volatility and trading in the stocks of securities have been halted under circuit breaker rules? This is Tim. Uh, market efficiency is an important concept. In these cases, plaintiffs typically seek to satisfy the reliance requirement of a 10B5 claim by alleging that there's a presumption of reliance under Basic versus Levinson because the company's securities trade in an efficient market. With all the volatility and disruptions in the market currently, including some trading halts, there may be more opportunities for companies to argue that during certain periods, their stock was not actually trading in an efficient market and the planners are not entitled to the presumption of reliance. If the pandemic is having an adverse effect on virtually all companies, how will plaintiffs be able to show that the company's stock drop was the result of its own misstatements or omissions? Well, it is true that a plaintiff must plead and ultimately prove that a company-specific misstatement or omission caused the plaintiff's loss. But when a market-wide event like the pandemic is causing losses to nearly all companies and there's unprecedented volatility in the market, it's more difficult for plaintiffs to meet the loss causation requirement. Working with forensic economists, defense counsel will use statistical methodologies such as event studies to show that a drop in the stock price was caused by general economic or market factors and not company-specific information in order to beat back the plaintiff's loss causation claim. Some of the techniques that plaintiffs use to show price inflation in a company's stock price and then to cast that alleged inflation back through the class period to prove damages may not be valid in periods where the effect of market or industry forces on the price, such as the effects of COVID-19 or other confounding factors attributable to the pandemic, simply can't be separated from the effects of any company-specific information. 
drawing on our prior experience from the 2008 financial crisis, we had success then in arguing on motion to dismiss that plaintiffs had failed to adequately plead loss causation where the company had lost significant value prior to the alleged corrective disclosure and its losses at the time of the ultimate disclosure tracked losses suffered across its industry peers. Part of the argument from a practical perspective is that the securities laws are not an insurance policy against unexpected market-wide events. Pam mentioned insolvency earlier. This crisis is expected to take many companies over the edge and into insolvency. How does that affect DNO liability exposure and risk? Well, Doug, since I kicked off that topic, I'll, I'll follow up here. Um, there's two things I'd like to note uh, for our listeners. One is that aside from bankruptcy, there comes a point when a company is unable to pay their debts when due or fails to meet other tests that suggest the company may actually be insolvent. The consequences of that are to shift the fiduciary duties that the board and officers owe from the company and all its shareholders to the company and all of its creditors. When the fiduciary duty shifts to the creditors, it does change the lens through which the board and management make decisions on behalf of the company. And so it, it's important to be aware when insolvency may occur. It's important to consult with um, counsel regarding what tests help you determine whether a company is insolvent. Many, in many states, it's called the zone of insolvency, although not in Delaware. Um, but know when it's happening and then understand how that changes the lens in which you review and make decisions about uh, the corporate business and use of its assets. The biggest thing I want to mention, though, is that what directors and officers count on when they're defending themselves against lawsuits is for the company to step up and pay uh, the cost of the lawyers um, through advancement or indemnification, which companies are generally required to do by contract and under state codes and in articles. But if the company's out of money, the company can't pay. It is really important to protect director and officer assets by making sure that third-party insurance is available to pay dollar one to pay those lawyers when the directors and officers need a defense and the company can't pay. It's known as side A coverage. It can be negotiated. There may be exclusions, but now, now is the time for any company seeing you know, risk on the horizon to check with their broker, lawyers, and insurance companies on whether there's adequate coverage if the company can't pay. All right, Dave, you're going to talk about uh, the, the last issue? Sure. Let me just make a point about uh, companies that um, with the payment of dividends. So note that given the economic stress currently being inflicted on everyone by this pandemic, a number of companies are currently revisiting how they're handling dividend payments. So short of real potential insolvency issues, we still see most companies are paying previously declared dividends, mostly because of there's a heightened shareholder litigation risk. We are seeing many companies out there, though, suspending future dividend payments and revisiting dividend payment programs going forward due to this uh, uncertainty that's going on and liquidity issues. 
Uh, before we end, I just wanted to, to ask each of you, if there was one piece of advice you could be giving companies to do now, what would that be? Dave, you can start. Sure. So I would say from a disclosure lawyer, we often sometimes run some language by our litigation colleagues. I think in this environment, and it's critical that we work hand in hand with litigation attorneys on the disclosures that companies are putting out to do our best to try to mitigate the risk, because even if there's less regulatory risk, if, as the SEC is trying to encourage forward-looking information, there's still a extremely heightened plaintiff lawsuit risk given uh, the current market environment. So really working with both litigators and uh, disclosure counsel together to work on language that helps best protect a company is the piece of advice I would give. Litigators are your friend. Uh, how about you, Bob? What, what advice would you be giving? Well, I, I, obviously, I agree with Dave, and I would be say I would say that every company right now should be reviewing and updating their MD&A and risk disclosures. Thank you, Pam. I would say that it's important to for boards to document um, staying on top of what's happening with their company with the pandemic to assure timely decision-making, same with management, and also uh, check their insurance coverage. And Tim, how about you? I, I think it's important that companies um, take time to uh, revisit their system of internal controls to make sure that the systems they have in place are sufficient to manage risk in the new environment that we're all faced with currently. And, and I would just add uh, to what Pam said, I think it's very important that, uh, that directors and officers stay informed and, and keep current and, and seek the advice of, of experts and advisors to make sure that they are uh, aware of everything that's happening uh, in the current environment. I want to thank each of you, Bob, Pam, Tim, and Dave, for offering your insights today. For those listening, if you have questions, please feel free to contact any one of us or visit our COVID-19 Resource Center at covid19.pepperlaw.com.